This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Silvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Massachusetts is world-renowned for the quality of its institutions of higher education, often called the Athens of America. At more than 52%, Massachusetts ranks first among all states in the percentage of citizens with an associate's degree or higher. While we may all agree on the value of education, the rising cost of tuition and burden of debt incurred by students create obstacles to entry and potential drags on future productivity. Could proposals for student debt forgiveness or making college free serve to ensure more citizens earn valuable degrees? Or might such proposals merely serve to subsidize students from wealthy families already intending to go? Indeed, in the interest of ensuring higher education is available to everyone, what steps could students and families take and what programs could be offered that ensure each student chooses to borrow wisely from programs designed for their future earnings? My guest today is Beth Akers, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, focusing her work on the economics of higher education. Dr. Akers is the author of the recently released book entitled Making College Pay, An Economist Explains How to Make a Smart Bet on College. Dr. Akers has a PhD in economics from Columbia and a BS in mathematics and economics from the State University of New York at Albany. Dr. Akers will share with us her observations on the challenges of student debt in America, how proposals for debt forgiveness and free college may address these challenges, and how to be better consumers of college debt so as to optimize the value of the education we purchase. When I return, I'll be joined by AEI education economist, Beth Akers. Hubwonk is a production of Pioneer Institute, a Boston-based think tank that seeks to improve the quality of life in Massachusetts and beyond. Pioneer is a 501c3 organization that relies on your support. Please visit pioneerinstitute.org to make a tax-deductible donation today. Okay, we are back. I'm Joe Silvaggi, and I'm now joined by AEI resident fellow, economist Beth Akers. Welcome to Hubwonk, Beth. Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me. Well, we're very happy to have you here on Hubwonk. Uh, you've just released a fascinating book uh, entitled Making College Pay, uh, An Economist Explains How to Make a Smart Bet on College. Uh, before we get into the content of the book and your views on the topic, what what drew you to uh, uh, do your research and your writing about uh, college and how we uh, 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 go about financing a, a degree? Well, to be honest, I sort of fell into it um, over a decade ago. I was working in Washington at the Council of Economic Advisors during the beginning of the financial crisis, the mortgage, mortgage crisis. And at that time, there was a little known student loan crisis that wasn't because uh, Congress passed emergency legislation to implement a quick patch. And so I was on the team that worked to implement that patch and avoid having a student loan crisis that fall of 2008. And so at that time, I was in grad school, um, a lot bothered me about the way that we were talking about student debt and higher ed finance at that time. So when I finished grad school, I decided to make it my mission to convince the world to think about student loans and higher ed finance the way that I do. <laughs> Wonderful. That's a, that's a great answer. Uh, it was a personal uh, observation. And uh, well, we're talking about higher education. This is Boston. I know you're a student uh, of uh, New York schools, but we have a few schools up here in Boston as well. So it's near and dear to our heart. A couple, yeah. Um, let's talk about the uh, scope of the debt. Um, there's quite a bit of debt in, in the US. Uh, I've heard large numbers with trillion in, uh, after it. So give us a sense of how big this issue is. Yeah, so if you're reading newspaper stories on this issue, 
You're frequently reading a growing number. I think at last count, it was about $1.6 trillion. And often the stories stop there and say, well, because it's such a big number, we necessarily have a student loan crisis. Economics says something a bit different. We celebrate higher education as an investment that pays both personal and social dividends. And so one other way to look at that number is we have made huge investments in human capital in this country. And that's actually something that we should be celebrating because that's been a mission of our nation for a long time. Um, of course, when you look at the nuance, it gets a little bit more complicated, but at first blush, that number alone doesn't tell us enough. So you're looking at the issue from, uh, of course, an economist view. It's almost like an accounting principle whereby uh, to get a comprehensive uh, sense of the issue, you have to look at uh, assets and liabilities. The asset is the education. The liability is the loan that uh, follows after one gets an education. Would that be a fair analysis? Yeah, exactly. We've, I mean, in this country, people are comfortable with the idea of a mortgage borrowing to buy a home. In fact, we celebrate when people get their first mortgage. It's like kind of a, a rite of passage into economic adulthood. Um, but we see student debt differently. Um, and that makes some sense for, for some reasons, but a lot of ways it doesn't because education is known to be such a solid investment. Um, estimates show that the rate of return on education, something like double the stock market. If you're to put those same dollars that you put in tuition into um, an index fund or something like that, you come out way ahead if you invest in yourself in education. And so I think that's the appropriate frame uh, to think about that spending. And it's one that's often missing from the popular discourse. Yes, that's an important point. We've got a lot of debt, but of course, uh, a lot of education. Nevertheless, uh, $1.6 trillion seems like a very, very big number. Uh, for the benefit of our, list, of our listeners, uh, can you let us uh, give, a, give us some color on who it is that has this debt and um, you know, how much debt does a, a typical student have when they finish school? Yeah, so we used to think of student debt, or maybe some people still do think of student debt as a tool that poor students or poor families are using to get themselves into school, but it's not otherwise affordable. Student debt has become a tool that's used across the income distribution. So lower income people use it um, often to go to less expensive colleges and have lower balances. And in fact, the families that end up with the most debt are some of the most well-off families. That's because they're choosing to go to the most expensive institutions and their children stay in school for the longest time. Um, so we know that debt is now a universal experience um, with the majority of people coming out of school having some of it. So I guess what you're telling us is it's almost a counterintuitive uh, observation that uh, rather than uh, poorer students having more debt, it's actually uh, wealthier families, wealthier students having more debt, largely because they choose more expensive institutions. They stay there longer, get a graduate degree. So some of the uh, large numbers you hear in debt are, are uh, perhaps even a wise choice, uh, deliberate choice of wealthy students, not the uh, uh, poor circumstance of uh, less wealthy uh, families needing to take on more debt. That's right. Now, one eye-opening feature of your book, I thought you made the point well, which is uh, unlike uh, getting a loan for, let's say, a house or a, a business, uh, when uh, folks are, banks are approving loans, they don't scrutinize the student uh, uh, based on some ability to pay the loan back. They don't, they don't discriminate based on the, the school that's chosen or the major that's chosen. They effectively approve anyone who uh, asks for the money. Uh, this seems like a very different approach. And, you know, uh, if you're not assessing risk when making a loan, uh, you're um, 
you know, uh, perhaps taking on unnecessary risk and and uh, uh, leading students to take on debt that they may not reasonably be expected to be able to pay back. Do you see this feature as a, as a problem here? I see a huge problem with that aspect of student loans. So um, what it is is that there's no underwriting in the student loan market. So we don't worry about people taking out mortgages they can't afford because we know that on the other side of the transaction, the bank is sort of making sure that the value proposition of the home purchase makes sense, conditional on what the buyer's financial circumstances look like. Since we don't do that in education, we kind of hang our hat on the averages that says, on average, college is worth it. Therefore, we can just give everyone these loans and it should work out in the end, right? Um, there's tremendous heterogeneity in the returns to education across institutions, across majors, across individuals with different characteristics. And right now, the federal loan system is set up to not discriminate so that everybody has equal access to debt to pay for college. And that's not by accident, that's by design, um, a leftover from the decades of which we were, you know, pushing towards what we called access to education, quote unquote, access to education was the mission. And that's that if you could just get people into college, it makes all the problems go away. It, it, education works as a mechanism for social mobility and all as well. We learned that that's not the case because people often start school and don't finish. School is sometimes not that mechanism for social mobility, does not always deliver people to those earnings opportunities. And so as a result, we have predictably unaffordable loans that are continuing to be made year after year out of the federal lending program. That's bad for taxpayers, but I'd argue that's worse for the individuals. Um, when we know, statistically speaking, that they're unlikely to ever be able to afford to pay back their loan, but we give it to them anyway, that's really a, a disservice to the individual. So do you effectively see this as, as creating a moral hazard, or, or for those who are not familiar with the term, we're uh, we've created a system in which we encourage people to take unnecessary risk, um, really uh, through no fault of their own. The system itself uh, invites uh, risk that might not otherwise be taken. Without a doubt. I mean, well, the, the, the reason there's moral hazard is because we actually don't require people to pay back their loans when they are truly unaffordable. That's a change in the past 10 years. Right now, if you have a student loan, you can make a, a payment that's proportional to what your income is. And if ultimately you still have a balance after 10 or 20 years, depending on the sector you're employed in, you'll have that balance forgiven. And so um, that really introduces, in, in theory, the moral hazard, which is that I don't necessarily need to work that hard to you know, pick a major or um, a career that's going to be worthwhile. The un contrary to that, though, would be that to have an unaffordable student loan um, because of the way these programs are administered is still pretty uncomfortable. So I'm not sure I'd argue that a lot of people um, are doing that, at least with undergraduate debt, although there is more of a concern with the graduate level borrowing, because when you get to those levels of borrowing, it's very often the case that a student knows um, that the next dollar that they borrow to pay for living expenses or whatever is dollar they'll never have to pay back. Um, and that's hugely concerning to economists because of the incentive problems. Yeah, so that's a, a public uh, moral hazard. Uh, the private moral hazard is um, you're taking on debt that you can't repay personally. Um, what is the profile of someone who really is crushed under? You, you described a system whereby it seems fairly forgiving. Um, you know, if you can't pay, you don't pay. Um, right. What? Who are the people who are you know, you know, our politicians are telling us about that that are you know, 
paying their student debt back with their social security payments at, at you know, at uh, 65. Uh, who are these people? Mm-hmm. So the plus loans are the are often the ones that are capturing these older Americans. Plus loans are loans that parents t- can take out for their children's education. It's basically credit card debt because that debt does not have those protections that are afforded to students when they borrow in their own name. So I suspect this is going to be a growing problem. Undergraduate loans are capped. You see that students end up with about $30,000 in debt from undergraduate studies. That's because of the current lending limits in the program. But for graduate school and for PLUS loans, which are for parents, um, there's virtually unlimited lending. And so they're able to get themselves into a whole heap of trouble um, without um, any source of protection on the back end. I'll also say that even though we do have these safety nets in theory of the income-driven repayment, um, student advocates will tell you all day long that they're not working very well. And I have to agree that they're right. To, in, in, in some respects, um, the administration of the programs are really ugly. We did not you know, pass a law that created a universal safety net um, that made any sense. Instead, we had incremental changes in policy so that there's a whole mishmash of programs that together create universal protections, but are just really nasty for consumers to have to navigate. I want to go down that, that um, you, you mentioned these uh, plus loans that uh, parents uh, take out on behalf of their children to pay for their children's education. Um, and the parents listening to this podcast, I'm sure, uh, identify with the desire to make sure their kids get a good head start. But in your book, you mentioned uh, it may not be uh, optimal for a parent to take out debt. Rather, it may be better for everyone, both the student and the parent, to uh, choose to have the student take the loans out rather than the parents. Say a little bit about that, because I think that you make a very, very good point that a lot of people um, would value. Yeah, so um, we we like we just talked about the income driven repayment program protects student borrowers from having to make payments that are unaffordable based on how much they actually earn. So there's two versions of that: one that's open to everybody, and another that's open to people who work for the a nonprofit or for the government. Those people have an even sweeter deal, which is that they only have to make payments on their loans for 10 years after they graduate before their remaining balance will be wiped away. So especially if you're a parent who imagines your child might go into a profession where they'll work in public service, um, you can necessarily you know, have a chance of having uh, a redu- effectively a reduced price because some of the debt gets um, forgiven on the back end if you put the borrowing in your student's name. If you pay cash, the cash is gone. <laughs> you, there's no further benefit that you will ever get back from the federal government. If you pay in your own name, you're not eligible for these programs. And so putting it in your child's name may seem um, less generous, <laughs> I guess. Um, my poor son is going to have every dollar in his name when he goes to college, but um, um, but it's actually the, the wiser thing to do. And on a related note, um, the other thing to think about is that even if you do have cash to put towards your child going to school, it's often better to use loans that are available to you and keep that cash on the sidelines and invest it in something like an index fund that offer in general a much higher rate of return than what you're paying on these loans from the government that are subsidized. And of course, you're now liquid enough that if your your student uh, son or daughter runs into financial trouble, you can help them directly, right? Whereas if you've used all your money paying for tuition with no backstop, no insurance, you, you've got little recourse if you are indeed, you know, not a wealthy family. 
Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and just knowing, you know, college is risky, right? It, it works out on average, um, but for some it doesn't, and it doesn't always work out right away. So if your child needs to come move back home or you need to pay their grocery bills for a few months after they get out of school, I mean, being able to do that is, is much more valuable than it is for you to send the, your student to the, the dream college of their choice, you know, if you have to pinch pennies and, and, and borrow to get them there. Now, your book doesn't just go into... Uh, how one might pay for college, but also what might one might get from college. That is to say, some degrees, some schools might be more valuable than others. Uh, when families are looking at uh, ultimately the return on this education investment, uh, they need to look at some criteria, which school, which major. Um, in your analysis, what do you think uh, families, uh, how are they best served? Uh, what yardstick when looking at schools? Would it be uh, the cost? Would it be the reputation? Would it be the major? Uh, there's uh, a lot of practical matters that go in and, and, you know, students may prefer, uh, to look at campuses, uh, how beautiful the campus is or, uh, what the student body looks like. What would you use as your criteria for, uh, when you're counseling your own, I, I think you are a mom, uh, what would you use when looking at schools? Yeah. You know, I think some people read my work and mischaracterize the message as, I'm telling people to go to the school or the major that gets them the highest return, that puts them in the strongest financial footing they could possibly be on. And that's not at all um, what I'm trying to express. What I have found is that when people think about college um, it, and, and just the general discourse, that we're all very romantic about college. And so the ideas in my book teach people how to understand what the trade-offs are when you go to college, meaning how much you pay and how much you're likely to get after it's all over. Uh, but the purpose of that is to ensure that you're not putting yourself in a position financially that you don't want to be. Not everyone has to take the highest earnings occupation path, right? Not everyone would love to be an economist or an engineer. And that's totally fine. But I think individuals should in the context of their personal financial situation, ensure that the path that they're on has led other students towards outcomes that would be affordable to them. If your family's not there with a trust fund to help you pay back your loans when you finish, maybe you do want to think about a more practical major, one that leads more consistently to earnings. Um, you know, but if finances are less of a concern for you, lucky you, and, um, you know, go wild and pick something that... Um, makes your heart fire or whatever they say. <laughs> All right. So we've established that um, uh, paying for college can be expensive, but it's uh, um, often that, that debt is taken on by more wealthy students, not less wealthy students, that the uh, student debt payback programs are somewhat forgiving and uh, uh, consider a, a, uh, a graduate or a student's uh, earnings. So uh, far more forgiving than any other kind of loan. Mm -hmm. uh, but let's let's get to current day when we've got some pretty aggressive uh, proposals uh, from our current president. Uh, we're here in Massachusetts. Our own Senator Warren has suggested that despite all these other facts, uh, we do need to forgive loans uh, to the tune of $50,000, uh, merely forgive uh, those people who have taken those loans. So give me a sense of what you think uh, is the value of, of such a step. 
Well, for context, you know, I've been writing about this stuff for about a decade now, and I never could have imagined that the conversations we're having today would be on the table. I mean, it's so far from from where things started, where 10 years ago, candidates on both sides of the aisle were talking about incremental increases in the Pell Grant as being their big higher ed platform. And here we are with free college, student loan cancellation, and um, the, the leftward movement in the conversation has just been tremendous. Um, I, I'm, I'm very opposed to any of the, the calls for widespread student loan cancellation, including the one proposed by Senator Warren uh, being championed by um, Senator Schumer at this point as well. But there's two problems with these proposals. One is that they deliver huge benefits to people who are already very well off. Um, and again, this comes back to who borrows, right? The people who borrow the most are people who go to graduate and professional schools. They leave school and go on to be amongst the highest earners in our economy. Forgiving student debt without any question about whether that debt is affordable to the borrower means that we're helping out those people often to a greater degree than we are helping the people who are truly struggling. The highest rates of default on student debt are seen among people who have balances of less than $5,000. And so these are people who started maybe at a community college, borrowed for a semester of living expenses, and then didn't finish. These are the kind of people that we should be thinking about bailing out. These, these huge proposals for huge dollar value forgiveness are just hugely um, regressive in that in that way, the second concern I have is where does this lead us going forward? So if we've started to tell people, um, you know, you get yourself in trouble with debt, don't worry, we're just going to wipe it away next year. You know, I just wrote a book advising students on how to kind of game the system to the extent that they can. So the next book I write is going to be telling people borrow even more because it's very likely you're never going to have to pay it back. <laughs> And so I think that we'll see people responding to that. We'll see individuals borrowing more because of it. And we'll see institutions raising their prices more aggressively than they would have otherwise because their students will be willing to pay it. And both of those are the two most concerning trends that we have in higher ed finance right now. So it's a kind of um, a short-term fix that exacerbates the problems that are, that are at the core of what we should be thinking about. One not, we need not be an economist to know that a, a subsidy will have an effect on uh, the price of of college, right? It's going to drive right. it upward. Um, and therefore, um, if, if our goal is to reduce the cost of college, this would do the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I, I'm con conservative minded in this space, but I also appreciate that it, it does make some sense to subsidize education because of the social return. And there is some deadweight loss that comes from having a subsidy and it's justified by the additional return. And so, so I'm not against subsidies altogether. I want to be clear on that, but I am opposed to, to this move because I think it goes way too far. Well, that's a, a good segue to my next question, which is uh, other senators, uh, such as uh, um, former presidential candidate Bernie Sanders, has suggested, look, um, look, as a society, if we all agree that education is a great thing, uh, why not uh, make college free? In fact, uh, wouldn't we all be better off given that uh, um, I think the estimate for the value of an undergraduate degree is a million dollars over a lifetime? Who wouldn't want to do that? So why not make college free? What do you say to those kinds of proposals? 
Well, I prefer to maintain the advantages that come from having a competitive marketplace for higher education. So right now, our system of higher education is really heterogeneous. So there's all sorts of institutions that exist. We often think of the four-year traditional colleges, the beautiful campuses, but we have certificate programs, both um, private, nonprofit, for-profit institutions. Many in all these different categories are serving students very well. Many are also not serving students well, but those are both public institutions and private, nonprofit and um, for-profit institutions. So by moving to a public regime, we necessarily shut down the private sector, which we know currently is, is doing a lot of good, is generating a lot of benefit. Um, in theory, students could still go to those institutions, but in effect, the additional subsidy to the public sector would likely eliminate the, the private side and their ability to compete. So we would um, essentially homogenize the higher ed sector. We don't have the highest quality outcomes currently coming out of the two-year public sector, which is what the Biden administration has proposed for their free college proposal. So we'd be moving from a heterogeneous um, with diverse quality um, sector or marketplace to one that has proven to be a, a relatively poor track record of success for students. So that's hugely problematic. Um, and I mean, those are the, the forces I think that are important for us to, to see innovation going forward in higher education. Higher ed is kind of a stodgy old industry as it is and slow to move forward um, in part because of all of the subsidies that we do have um, socializing a, the sector altogether I think only doubles down on that challenge. So what you're saying is um, uh, many students uh, with uh, less to spend on college could opt for what effectively are many grants, like a, a voucher system. Right now we have a voucher system that uh, effectively makes uh, some colleges free and uh, that voucher system encourages competition. That competition um, fosters better quality. Without that competition, that, that let's say marginal quality uh, becomes far less. Is that fair? Yeah, exactly right. We've talked about some of the bad proposals, uh, but in your book uh, and in your article in The Globe, you, you put forward a couple of really uh, exciting alternatives. Uh, so we've talked about why uh, we need to address this. You've, you've openly declared we need some subsidy. There is some public good, uh, despite the deadweight loss of, of, of subsidies. Uh, so let's, let's start there. Where do you see uh, the good programs now, and uh, how would you make those better or replace them with something better? Well, I'm all about information in this market. So I think a lot of the problems that we have seen is that um, students are not well-informed about what it is that they're purchasing. That's not their fault. They're not stupid or ignorant, but they're facing a very opaque marketplace for a product that's very difficult to measure quality. There has been movement in the past... 10 years to create databases where students can go and look at institutions that they're considering enrolling at and see how graduates of those institutions have fared after graduation when it comes to how much they're earning and whether or not they're succeeding in paying back their loans. And so I think this is movement in a positive direction. We're seeing consumers start to respond to this data to demand that institutions prove these workplace outcomes and labor market outcomes that they're actually desiring. I think that in itself has the potential to go a long way to improve the market. Um, we don't worry about people buying overpriced cars, for example, right? Because people are pretty good at looking at a car and saying, is it worth the price? Is it not worth the price? 
And if someone buys a Lamborghini, we say, well, they must really love that Lamborghini and good for them, right? Um, so, oh, sorry, my phone just started talking to me. <laughs> um, Siri, Siri's joined the conversation. Yeah. But in education, um, what we have is the strong sense that consumers are not good judges of value. And so we worry about people's individual choices about how much to spend. So I think to the extent that we can get people to have the information to make more informed decisions for themselves, um, that takes onus off the the government and states to regulate this marketplace or to kind of strong hand um, quality out of the sector. Is there any place uh, that uh, um, aggregates that kind of information? Is there, you know, is it U.S. News and World Report that's notorious of talking about which school is the best school? Or um, you know, yeah. is there value uh, indexes that uh, are out there? There are. So um, I'm not a fan of U.S. News and World <laughs> Report. I'll just throw that one out there, sure. and it's because it's based on all the, the the rankings are based on a lot of these romantic notions that I think are just too much baked into the way that we think about value in college that are not appropriate or not consistent with what people's preferences actually are. So Money Magazine was one of the first to develop a value-based ranking system for colleges. They use data from a federal website called the collegescorecard.gov, which is um, it's a government website, which are not known for being particularly user-friendly. This one's not terrible though. Um, so I would recommend consumers thinking about where to go to college or where to send their child, check that website out directly. And then also check out the Money Magazine rankings um, to see what they have to say. So students and families ought to be more informed uh, and look at more of a value-oriented index. We look at the graduation rate. We look at uh, the income, the likely uh, expected salary coming out of school. And that all rolls up into a, a very practical, uh, sober-minded uh, approach to uh, college selection. But we're talking about longitudinal studies that may go over you know, decades. Uh, that's a heck of a lot of data. Is it realistic to believe that we can realistically assess the you know, lifetime earnings of, of a graduate from this school or that school or this major or that major? Uh, isn't that a, an awful lot of data? It is a lot of data. Um, so um, we have a growing access to data in this space that was not available um, a decade ago. So the idea of knowing what graduates are earning five or 10 years out, the government knows it. It exists in the IRS and farm education databases, but researchers and the public don't. But we're starting to collect that information. And under the Obama administration, it became publicly available through this college scorecard portal. And that's exactly what it is. It's looking at longitudinal data of individuals who went to these institutions and how much they're earning um, at a number of years out of, from graduation. So our, our listeners are smart. Uh, they do their homework. They look at uh, Money Magazine's uh, value index, they choose the right school, uh, they get into school, they take out some debt, uh, and you know what, they don't finish. I think there's something like two-thirds of uh, people who enter college don't finish. Uh, now they've got debt and theoretically have not earned the degree that will uh, redound to their, their bottom line. Uh, mm -hmm. What, what uh, programs would you have that would help those people uh, get out from underneath a debt that, uh, you know, if not help to pay back? 
Well, probably the first solution for them would be to go back to school, <laughs> but okay. suppose that's not an option. Um, so they're going to want to go to the Federal Department of Education. There's a website that lists the set of income-driven repayment programs that are available to borrowers. Now, it's a mess. There's a number of programs. You won't be eligible for all of them, but you need to figure out which ones you're eligible for and which one lowers your payments the most. You want to sign up for that have those reduced payments applied to your loan, and then make those payments, stay current on those payments, and then ultimately your balance will be forgiven. It won't be a comfortable or easy process, but it will be financially worth it in the long run. Now, you're, you've uh, written in some of your articles about the uh, complexity of those systems. Uh, you've proposed alternatives. Uh, what would you like to see uh, if you were president for the day? Um, where would you like to see those programs go? So right now, I think there's something like 10 different income-driven repayment system programs, which just means there are 10 different ways to reduce your monthly payments based on how much you're earning and then ultimately have your balance forgiven. So it's really basic. Let's get rid of nine of those or however many there are, I can't even remember, and make it just one. Let's have everyone eligible for these programs. Let's not make it something you need to know about to sign up for, but instead let's make it automatic. You graduate college, you get your first student loan um, payment coupon in the mail, and with it, you submit information on what you're earning, and then they tell you what's due. Um, that's the program I'd like to see. I think we want to make it easy for student borrowers to get the help they need. If we put the onus on individuals who are struggling to find help, um, then we're necessarily going to have an insufficient safety net relative to what we could have for the same cost, really. Uh, and as I understand it, these programs are really uh, based on your ability to repay or effect effectively um, based on your income. So if you're a you know, new brain surgeon, it's a big number. If you're a barista, it's a small number. Is that fair? Exactly. So what they do is they take your income uh, and they calculate a number that they call your disposable income. So that's something like take out what they estimate as your living expenses and what it takes to feed an individual and all that. And then you have an amount that's left. They consider that your disposable income. And then they set payments, depending on the program, at about 10 or 15% of that amount. So it's it caps it at a relatively small proportion of your income. So regardless of how much you're earning, it should be affordable for you. I see. Uh, are there any um, uh, proposals out there in legislation that is actually uh, uh, codifying or proposing what you've just described? Senator Rubio's office it has something in the works that um, they have proposed previously that would streamline um, income-based repayment. I think uh, five years ago, we saw support on both sides of the aisle for this issue. Advocates for students were saying this needs to be simpler, um, but they have sort of abandoned those efforts for the bigger fish, which are free college and student loan cancellation. So we see Republicans are the ones really today pushing for the reform of the income-driven repayment plans. Um, and I think while Democrats are implicitly supportive of these sorts of solutions politically, um, it doesn't make sense for them to be on board because fixing the problems that we have today um, means that you're not able to say, we have a crisis and we need a radical solution. So if, uh, if you're proposing a radical solution, a less radical solution is, is not appealing in general, right? So um, yeah, we're exactly. Close, we're coming close to the end of our show. I want to make a plug for your new book. I think it came out just in, was it May? 
Um, That's right. It was released. Okay. And it's called uh, Making College Pay. An Economist Explains How to Make a Smart Bet on College, which uh, covers in more depth uh, many of the themes we've had in our conversation today. Where can our listeners find you and your work um, going forward? You can find me at bethacres.com. I'm also Dr. Beth Acres on Twitter. And I have a homepage at the AEI website where we have all of my recent writing. Wonderful. And I and you also, I discovered, have your own uh, podcast on the topic. So you're a fellow podcaster as well. Yes, I am. An economist goes to college and it's a, <laughs> unlike most of my work, which is speaking to wonks and policymakers, this one is trying to speak to parents and people considering college for themselves. Wonderful. I hope our... Uh, our uh, listeners discover your podcast as well and, and, and take a deep dive into the topic. It's, it's uh, top of mind up here in Boston. We, we like our schools. Um, and so we appreciate this conversation. Thank you very much, uh, Beth, for joining us today. It's been a very informative conversation. Thanks so much for having me, Joe. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support us. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your podcatcher. If you'd like to help us be found by other people, it would help us if you give us a five-star rating or a favorable review. And of course, it's always welcome for you to share us with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for me for topics for future episodes, you can reach me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Thank you.